Hello, beautiful people. Welcome back. My guest today is me, kind of. Charlotte Fox Weber is a psychotherapist, past Modern Wisdom guest, and she's been talking to me for a little while about turning the mic around and asking me some questions about my own internal state, what my strengths and flaws are, why I am the way I am, why I do what I do. And I thought, given that the end of the year tends to be an interesting time for us all to reflect on where we're at, that this could be quite a interesting and timely insight into someone that you listen to <laughs> speaking in your ears a couple of hours a week. Um, it was definitely a change of pace for me, and there was sections of the podcast where I, I really had to kind of open up uh, a lot, a lot more than I have done previously, but it felt it felt really nice. I'm more than happy to be the person who does this and opens up about vulnerabilities and flaws and strengths and all the internal monologue stuff, because I think that it's very important for all of us to hear something on the internet that isn't just someone saying, look at how cool I am, look at how good and resilient and robust and indestructible and progressed from last year I am. Uh, so hopefully you'll take a lot away from today. I, I really enjoyed the process. Charlotte's like phenomenal at what she does. Uh, and we talk a lot about turning mental flaws into strengths, about overcoming past traumas from our childhood. Um, yeah, it, it's a, a very different conversation to the one that I'm used to having on the show, but I really, really enjoyed it, and I hope that you do too. In other news, this episode is brought to you by Surfshark VPN. Secure your browsing online and get access to the entire world's Netflix library for less than the price of a cup of coffee per month. You are probably bored of all the things that you can watch on Netflix at the moment as you're stuck at your parents' house or God knows where during the Christmas break, and you can 10x the access that your Netflix library has in less than a minute by heading to surfshark.deals slash modernwisdom for 83% off, three months free, and a 30-day money-back guarantee. Hackers and websites are tracking your data on the internet. Keep yourself secure by using a VPN. It takes two seconds to set up. It happens so fast you can use it on all of your devices, your laptop, your iPad, your phone, and everything else. It means that you can't be tracked. It means that people can't see the passwords and all of the data that you're using. And on top of that, you can change your location and access Netflix in America, which is so much bigger than everywhere else or netflix in japan and get loads of anime or netflix in germany and watch whatever germans watch surfshark.deals slash modern wisdom for 83 percent off three months free and a 30 30 30 30 day money back guarantee and also before we get into this episode thank you it's the end of the year 2020 has been ups and downs globally, but an absolute success for what I care about most, which is this show. So if you've shared an episode, rated, subscribed, sent it to a friend or done anything else, that means an awful lot to me. Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome back. You are so much less super pregnant than the last time that we spoke. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm I'm happy to not be pregnant. Although I have a beautiful baby from it. You so. got a you got a baby out of it, yeah. But you yeah. just like 
now half the size. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so what are we doing today? You wanted to do this thing. You said, I have an idea for an episode. I want to come on and talk Absolutely. to you. Absolutely. I, I have a real interest in understanding the life of a podcaster. And you're a particularly good one. I shouldn't just generalize it as the life of a podcaster because there are so many and that, that doesn't narrow it down enough. You ask exceptional questions. You are constantly curious. I would say curiosity must be a driving force for you. What is it like to be a question asker, a seeker, a constant conversationalist? I want to get into your mind. I'm, I'm curious for what it says about you psychologically. Um, I think that there are certain similarities between how you approach things and, and my work as a psychotherapist, trying to understand, inquiring, probing, looking at what's underneath, engaging intensely, wholeheartedly. Um, but it can also be a way of avoiding and not disclosing. So I'm here to challenge you in a way because we've, we've had some very interesting exchanges and conversations and I just want to turn it around because that's what I do. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. I, uh, I'm not sure what I'm in for today, but yeah, let's get started. Let's do this. Okay. You can always tell me when I'm pushing too much and, and you don't have to say anything you don't want to say. Cool. So what is it like to constantly ask questions? That's an interesting one. When I was in Dubai recently, we were, me and a, a friend that I was out there with, George, we were at a party that was very, very not socially distanced at a, around a pool with a few hundred people. And three different sets of people said the same thing to both of us. And they asked us separately, why are you asking so many questions? Mm. In like kind of a suspicious mm. way. The first thing that that identified was that we ask a lot of questions because curious. But the second thing was that in a place like Dubai, which is perhaps a little bit showy and to do with wealth, it's obvious that the game of tennis that people play when they converse is I'm waiting for you to finish saying your thing so I can say my thing. Right. Um, being honest, I was probably quite a selfish conversationalist for a long time. Mm. Mm. And it's been trained into me that actually in a conversation, the most selfish thing that you can do is ask questions because you don't know what the other person knows. You only know what you know. So by right. asking questions, you elicit very interesting stories. Mm. Um, I tweeted something today, actually, about the fact that people who think they're introverts might not be introverts. They might just have friends that suck. And mm -hmm. I certainly notice I, I ask fewer questions when I'm with people that I'm not really that interested in what they have to say, which sounds, right. sounds kind of terrible, but makes also makes sense. Like you're not going to dig as hard in a gold mine that you don't believe there's any gold in. Right. Um, so, yeah, I certainly have cultivated that. And I think weaponizing curiosity or that's not right. Disciplining curiosity into mm. a effective mode of discourse is something that I've really, really enjoyed doing and it's kind of been stepped up, especially this year. Uh, and I really feel that it's an art form, like the art of asking good questions without breaking the flow and without sort of losing where you're at and guiding mm. the person that you're with has made for outside of the show, it's made for some of the deepest connections that I've ever had. Me and my friend again, George, we did this flight out to Dubai and from Amsterdam to Dubai is seven hours on the nose. And mm. we didn't stop speaking for the entire way there. And it was wow. just us asking, like, we went from our sex robots ethical to what's the future of Bitcoin to like everything. And there was this mm -hmm. poor, poor girl 
uh, sat behind him, who must have been the only British person probably within about three meters. And uh, she didn't have any headphones in. She must have been thinking, just shut the fuck <laughs> up. Because to everyone else, it was just foreign language noise. But to her, she was probably hearing our sex robot Bitcoin mm. myriad discussion. So, mm. yes, that's it. I enjoy it. I enjoy asking questions. And it's something that I wish I'd known a lot, a lot sooner, that it makes for great connections, great friendships and, and a wonderful conversation. Fascinating. How old were you when you really discovered the value of asking questions? Only really since doing this show. Um, you mentioned curiosity mm. earlier on, which is the first of my five core values. Mm. And for everyone who hasn't gone and done it yet, Google Taylor Pearson core values and the exercise will take you a couple of hours, but it's been one of the most important things I've done this year, which is to identify what my life is built around in terms of values. Mm spells out a word the word is cases and the c in cases is curiosity mm -hmm. so curiosity i relate to that do you oh as, as a, a therapist professional I mean, I psychotherapist nothing, of many many years there's nothing worse than a therapist who lacks curiosity be interested can you be a therapist without having curiosity i mean you shouldn't be right yes and it's a sign of something. It can be a real sign of burnout as well. I, I think curiosity is a huge energy source. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. So tell me how you feel when people ask you questions. Does it ever kind of make you feel uncomfortable or turn the spotlight on you in an awkward way? Not really. I think for a long time, again, only child background and then mm. coming into doing this sort of a an industry I've always been used to having at least some form of center of attention mm. and perhaps my desire now to kind of discipline my curiosity into questions is me casting off what was once me very much being kind of selfish when it came to these sorts of conversations mm. it was all mm. about me 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 and now this is me almost going in the polar opposite direction and still finding joy in that um, I don't find it awkward at all. It's like a, a little bit of the old me comes out when I get to talk like this, where I get to indulge and it's my turn. It's me in the limelight. Right. Um, right. But I genuinely do enjoy creating a platform that allows whoever I'm speaking to to be at their absolute best. Like a ton of things that I give as advice to other podcasters, stuff, for instance, that the audience will never see, like when I'm on a Skype call with someone, I'll nod all the time just as they're talking i'll just keep mm. on nodding like this mm. like that churchill dog in the back of the car like just constantly going away because i want the other person to feel comfortable and confident like they you're know. encouraging yeah I, I i hear you this is what you're saying keep on going mate keep on going mate that sounds good that right. sounds good um so i love i love doing that and that has been a really interesting transformation and there may be i think it's perhaps something that young guys get a lot this sort of male posturing when you're you know, you break out of your teens into your 20s. You mm -hmm. want to be a, an alpha guy. You want to be attractive. You want to be confident and charismatic. And you can often mistake brashness and over self-sufficiency for that. And mm -hmm. I think, yeah, by far, whether it's trying to get laid or trying to make mates, like having curiosity, genuine curiosity in what other people say, it was enough that a bunch of different people at a party who were drunk highlighted like what the fuck are you doing asking questions so do you ever encounter people who really don't open up to you and how do you deal with that being honest my sample size for 
how long I've been doing this is probably not that big. Um, right. How long have you been doing this? 18 months, I'd guess, speaking mm-hmm. like this consistently. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think that was definitely one of the things. And again, any sort of budding, aspiring podcasters out there, if you're not used to asking questions, that's probably the first skill that you need to mm-hmm. learn, that it's your job to just get that curiosity turn it into like a pharmaceutical nuclear grade weapon and fire mm. it at the other person as much as possible. Um, yeah. So I, I, sometimes people don't want to open up in person, but you kind of get mm. that impression. If you're not on the same wavelength anyway, if you're not vibrating at the same frequency, you kind of sense that. But I think it's very hard. I find it hard as a therapist um, when people won't open up to me. It's something I've had to do. learn. Is, to is that not frustrating? It is. And, and I also find it socially as well. It's something I've had to endure and, and respect because not everyone is open and that's okay. I don't need to hit it off and connect incredibly deeply with everyone. But that's something I've definitely had to learn and be patient about. And I don't know if you find that as well, that sometimes you don't, you don't engage as intensely. You don't have a deep rapport with absolutely everyone. Absolutely, yeah. So do you ever ask people questions where they just kind of avoid or don't go further, don't take the conversation anywhere, and and you have to deal with that? Yeah, sometimes. I think Mm. my capacity to deal with awkwardness is actually fairly low, and that's something I've had to learn to deal with as well, that Mm. sitting with silence and sitting with awkwardness as a, a podcaster or just a conversationalist it's mm. something I really didn't like. I think it was born out of a, a rooted lack of confidence in my own ability, uh, either right. as sort of socially or as a podcaster. Mm. And silence to me meant I'm not interesting or they're not interested in me or I'm not mm. moving this conversation in the right direction or they're going to think this sucks or whatever it might be. And yeah, for a long time sitting with that silence was the most uncomfortable thing and then mm. some episodes that we've done this guy called daniel schmachtenberger who is a ridiculous polymath civilization engineer and we did this two hour long episode where there was 30 second silences in there and i just oh. felt perfectly fine just sitting and letting him think and he's thinking yeah. and thinking because that's the pace that he moves at and that was really beautiful and people commented on how nice it was to have that silence themselves as listeners mm. and i'm like hang on a second like there's two people in this conversation and neither of them felt uncomfortable with it. And you don't even get to choose as the listener when someone starts speaking again and you felt comfortable with it. Mm. So that really taught me a lesson about how silence is an important element of talking to people too. And it can actually yes. be used as a feature rather than a bug. Yes, absolutely. So do you find that applies in social situations as well? A little bit more difficult. Um mm-hmm often because it's not one-on-one and Mm. in a big group especially the sorts of circles that i'll sometimes traffic in there will be uh varying degrees of sort of brashness charisma outgoing extroversion and Mm. that doesn't those sorts of people don't tend to allow for a 30 second pause you know for someone someone to consider what the future of civilization looks like or whatever it is um it's rare Rarer, yeah. should I say. Do you find that when you can hold back, you can actually learn a lot more? 
I think so. Um, again, talking and not asking questions is on a gradation and further down from that is asking questions too quickly and not giving the other person time to speak. I'm sure that you, what's it called? Yeah. The use of silence or whatever it is in therapy that you guys use. Mm. Sure. The use of silence. Yeah. Well, it's just that I know mm. that sitting and just letting the, what do you call it? The client? Patient? Client. Client. Okay. Yeah. Patient mm. makes it sound a little bit dodgy, doesn't it? Uh, let oh, well, the, some therapists say patient. I say client. Cool. There's no, there's no perfect term. I don't really love either actually. Person person let the other person just sit and think and then whatever comes to the forefront of their consciousness is what they say next without you guessing what they want to say or something without rushing things along or crowding and i think silence sometimes gives space but it, it's about dosage because you don't want to give someone so much space i i went to a therapist once who was just horribly withholding with the silence and and it made me feel very uncomfortable so i think it's about finding what fits, but letting things emerge. And I guess if you're kind of crowding someone conversationally, I know for me, I, when I get too nervous, I go into question mode where I use questions as a defense, not in therapy so much, but in social situations where I just start kind of firing off questions and, <laughs> and it can be a way of hiding. So I'm really, really interested in what questions say about ourselves. And as a question asker, I'm now turning it on you. So I'm doing the same thing. I'm very aware, um, but I'm owning it. And I feel like we have that in common, that we that we inquire. But where are we in all of that? What does that say about us? And what's it like to to be asked questions? It, it's give and take. So it's it's interesting just to think about where you are in all of this and and what emerges from it. And, and how you kind of find your sense of self by constantly turning to others. Like, where, where does your voice come through? Yeah, again, I, I honestly think that this last year or so, last 18 months particularly, which has been shaped by this project, you know, mm. again, for all that I say to people to try and find something that they love, to mm. um, look at what they did when they were a kid between the ages of 8 and 14, and then consider that that some sort of evolution of that might be their passion as they get later into life. What is it that you can do for just unencumbered joy? Um, for all that I say that it's this kind of bottom-up, emergent way that you should try and find passion, this show very much has top-down affected the person that I am in what I would mm. say is a very positive way, um, but it's like it's dictated or it's influenced the the path that I've gone in terms of my own personal development. I walk away from the show and I take so much of this with me. I take mm. so much of the way that I operate uh, and hopefully that comes across. You know, like I, I want to be, I think this is one of the beauties of having long form conversations that people listen to regularly. You know, it's three or four hours a week of, of me doing this, mm. uh, although it's not usually me talking so much. And it's very hard to hide you in that. And for a very long time, as the listeners probably will be familiar with, I was living this kind of metacognizant, uh, playing a role, egoic game. And right. it shines a very bright light on you um, when you have to speak this much. And it, it forces you to really think like, okay, if I'm going to do this, if I try and play a persona, I'm going to be exhausted. So I just need mm -hmm. to be rigorous and truthful. Uh, so yeah, mm. it, it's it's interesting, but again, there's there's kind of two juxtaposed Christophers here. One of them being the 
the one that was probably very selfish up until maybe specifically five years ago and then uh, tapering up to like the last sort of two years or so. And then this one, which is very different, at least in terms of conversation. Mm -hmm. Do you ever get really tired of asking questions or being curious? Do you get bored and Almost never. feel like, wow. Almost never. So what, what supplies you with curiosity? How do you, how do you keep that source alive? I'm not sure that I just don't, I don't see any other joy. There is no greater joy to me than linking together two concepts that I didn't previously realize worked. Like I'll find mm -hmm. something out about the way that social media algorithms work or the way that this particular star gravity time dilation happens when it goes mm. into a neutron or star or whatever it might be. Like anything, whenever I learn any of this stuff or a little pithy aphorism about life or anything I, I adore it and it makes me incredibly happy and i think i wonder how much of that so here's something that i was going i was going to bring up with you obviously with your insights into psychology was that how much do you think of the personal development world the personal growth self-development movement that we're seeing at the moment is people using that to hide from the per a person that they don't like deep down. So if you say, I don't like me as I am now, but mm. if I continue to grow every day between now and the day that I die, perhaps the person that I turn into might be acceptable and worthy of love. How often mm. do you think it is that you come across people like that? It's a really interesting question. I, I like to think that Carl Rogers was right in saying that it's a paradox. We have to accept who we are in order to make changes. So I think that self-acceptance is often a part of growth. And it's the same conversation in a way, if that makes sense. Yeah, I get it. I, it's something I've been thinking about so much this year that I have some friends that mm. I think their desire for growth comes from a, a really good place. I think it comes from a place of just wanting to be better without feelings of insufficiency that's driving it but mm. i also think that there is a huge group perhaps even the majority maybe not but perhaps even the majority of people who are tumbling down the personal growth rabbit hole in a desperate attempt to try and find a person who they are going to be proud to look in the mirror and be mm. i read this quote the other day about how people who have a, a low sense of self-worth can sometimes find in development a hope for a hope for a better future basically yeah. does that make sense i that makes a lot of sense and i think i think that you're onto something really important which is especially prevalent during the pandemic there's a huge amount of pressure to self-actualize and the wellness industry the well-being industry suggests that we have to constantly be updating, improving, progressing, growing. And actually, what about self-acceptance? So I think there is that sense of coming to therapy thinking, fix me. And that can hide as I want to develop and grow. But actually, sometimes celebrating where you are already is is a profoundly important thing. And And I think people can come to therapy and discover that actually what they thought was a flaw turns out to be a strength. Well, so. Like well, I'll give you one example. Although you're totally doing your thing and turning this around on me. I see how you did that. But if you if you can see I'm wearing a necklace 
which is a ram with horns. <laughs> a therapist I went to once said to me, in I think quite an unkind way, you are like a ram with horns. And I think she meant it as an insult. It was an intervention. And I decided to take it as a compliment. And I began collecting rams with horns. And I, I love rams with horns. When I was in Italy recently, I saw rams with horns and I related to them and felt like we were one. One of the things I took from that therapy was accidental. She didn't mean for me to take it. It's not what I thought I would get from it. But I arrived in therapy thinking, I need to let go of this aspect of myself. And I left thinking, actually, that's part of who I am. What, I don't really want to change that. What is, a ram, a ram, what is a ram with horns? It means that I can be quite attached to certain things. And I probably get very assiduous about certain certain issues and and struggle to let things go. And a ram with horns, it, I mean, it can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. So there are times where I absolutely need to let go and not fixate and not obsess. But there are times where I think I'm very passionate and conscientious and I will go above and beyond for something. And that's part of who I am. So it's a strength and a weakness. But it's not it's not just one or the other. And I've decided to kind of embrace that aspect of myself. So I think sometimes celebrating our flaws is a massive victory. And and it can take a lot of work to get there. It It's a kind of journey for many. I know it's an overused term to say journey, but I didn't always realize that I liked being a ram with horns. And actually when she said it to me, I probably felt initially quite offended and hurt, but no longer. Well, I mean, a perfect example of that is I think I would have probably been called nosy as a kid. There you go. So same here. Totally, totally relating to that one. And what's nosiness? Like you roll that forward and then you discipline it down. You make it a little bit, you put a bow on it. You make mm -hmm. the rough, the rough edges a little bit less rough and you've mm -hmm. got well-crafted questions. I really do think one of the things I'd love everybody to take away is the um, barbell or the, the two-sided coin paradox that is strength and weakness. Uh, that, you know, yeah. being nosy as a kid or being a, a gobshite, which would be someone who kind of talks a little bit too much. If can I can, add to the list yeah, yeah, of things absolutely. that are Let's make strengths it. and weaknesses? Let's make it longer. Um, okay, so being nosy, definitely one. Sensitive, definitely another. Were you sensitive me. as a kid? Of course, and most therapists are, I think. Some are insensitive, maybe. But yeah, I was told I was sensitive, and, and that felt like a weakness, and now it's a strength, absolutely. Um, empathy is one. I know it's very trendy now for children to be taught empathy, I, I don't remember thinking that it was an advantage because I felt things acutely and I would hear about an upsetting story and it would really get under my skin and stay with me. And I didn't know how to kind of process it. And and now I've, I've managed to make use of it because actually caring is a really good thing in, in my world. But I, I sometimes cared in a way that felt disproportionate as a child. And Do you cry at like... Uh, romantic Christmas movies and like beautiful sort of sad uh, I, I felt it all I still feel a lot yeah but understanding that that strong feelings can actually be a wonderful life enhancing thing has taken time for me yeah there was a, a question asked by an audience member when I went to go and see Jordan Peterson live in Manchester a couple of years ago uh, and the question boiled down to the depth of my consciousness causes me to suffer. I'd prefer to be ignorant, 
like my dog than have to that the, the, yeah it's both a blessing and a curse to feel everything so very yeah. deeply oh yeah um yeah. and i i i understood the question and i, I really sort of empathized with the question as well mm. but we don't have that luxury we don't have that choice it's like um the allegory of the cave do you know that plato's allegory mm. of the cave yeah um so I, I advise anyone who doesn't know what that is to just go and go on youtube and learn about it it's basically taking the red pill that once you see something you can't unsee mm. it once you learn something you can't unlearn it um and that's the beautiful thing about having a conversation that when someone convinces you of something it's it's like it's literally like a parasite in your brain but hopefully one that's good someone convinces you of something you can no longer be unconvinced mm. and um yes i think that the depth of experience giving you that richness in life is something that can cause people to have turmoil right like it can mm. hurt it hurt it hurts to feel things that you know other people probably don't even notice that mm. way that that person glanced at you that slight shoulder turn or the fact that they hugged everybody else and just gave you a, a, a handshake when they left mm. or whatever it might be all of these little things and even just the fact that i noticed this stuff like these are all examples that i've seen not on me but in other people in the last month because right. I've been around, I'm not used to being around so many people. I was just like hyper-social mm. for four weeks. And all I'm doing is observing, just looking at stuff. But what's that? That's the nosiness coming through again. That's the curiosity. Mm. That's the... Hyper-vigilance, I, I would call it too. Yeah, perhaps. Bit. Perhaps. Um, I'm trying to think about some of the other things. So certainly coming from a working class town in the north of the UK... I, I don't I don't have the accent and mm. again at the time that was a weakness it was something that made me stand out at school uh, in a definitely a suboptimal manner uh, but that has led now to me having an accent that can be understood by Americans like you which is useful well so next up on my list for things that felt like a weakness that are now strengths I'm, I'm really loving this list being an outsider yeah Feeling like an outsider in my childhood was very uncomfortable and and I wanted to fit in. And now I take pride. I, I don't necessarily have to match everyone else. That doesn't mean I have to be kind of provocative and make a point of always being an outsider. It's also great to connect and feel like I belong. But actually accepting difference can, can be a wonderful thing. And I kind of wish I could say that to my younger self. I don't know if you ever feel oh, like absolutely like want to go back probably one of the the most important things if i could send a you know like a couple of sentence email it would yeah. be to embrace weirdness yeah the fact that your your weirdness is your competitive advantage i've said this a million yeah. a million million times um and your previous business partner mr de botton um, he has this fantastic video, Why We're Fated to be Lonely. And he says mm. that loneliness is a kind of tax we have to pay to atone for a certain complexity of mind. Uh, mm. Given the choice between honesty and acceptability, most of us choose the latter. Um, mm. But that very much is your unique route to never being competed against. And that comes to mm. within business, career, it comes for personally everything if you decide that no one else can ever be you no no one can beat you at being you um yeah. and the the sooner that you can embrace that as not just a nice sort of pithy aphorism that reminds you 
if you're feeling a little bit cast out that it's okay mate like that it it genuinely is the truth as i've embraced mm. my um weirdness and the fact that i don't necessarily fit into an archetype as tons mm. and tons and tons of people do they, they all feel this and they nerf the edges they round off the edges of the interesting stuff that they do in life to try and make themselves fit into the bell curve of what normal is mm. um but as george mcgill the buddy that i went to dubai with said if you're trying to be normal by definition you're regressing to the mean normal mm. people get normal results extraordinary people get extraordinary results like we all want somehow everybody wants to both be the most popular most liked person on the planet and also elon musk or conor mcgregor or you know like one right. of the one of the like kardashians or something and you mm. think you, you don't get it both ways those yeah. people have ridiculous outcomes because they have ridiculous inputs and right. you can choose one but you can't choose both right so let's go back to you if we can cool tell us something disturbing something surprising take a risk it doesn't have to be the big trauma with a capital t maybe trauma with a lowercase t um so i've certainly sort of realized a lot kind of following on from what we just said there realized a lot that the sort of insights that i've got by by being an outsider are mm. very liberating and very enjoyable um mm. but at the time just felt like such a curse like i just didn't fit in i couldn't i remember i used to think about how other people dressed or find bizarre quirks in how groups of people that i wanted to them to like me what I thought it was they were doing that was binding them together as a group. It's like, oh, it's because they were all wearing like skinny jeans and I was wearing loose fitting jeans or it's mm. because they all walk this way to school or I walk that way to school or whatever it might be. Um, and I think that for a long time I was just confused by a lack of acceptance, especially mm. as a young kid. And again, without necessarily a brother or a sister or someone who's kind of either always got your back and or can teach you the common rules of socializing – Mm. Um, that was, that's really only something kind of like realizing the impact that my childhood had on me is very, very much only something that I've come back to. And mm. in a way it's really, it, I find it fascinating. Like, I really enjoy tracking the line, tracing the route that different elements of me has walked and everyone that's listening can think the same. Like, everything that you are now is the flower that's grown out of a seed of something that was planted when you were much younger. And right. Again, another school of life video is where they talk about bad inner voices and they say all bad inner voices were once a bad outer voice. Um, mm. And when you hear the way that you criticize yourself for underachieving at X or mm. not being good enough at Y or the, the shame that you feel when you make a blunder sort of socially, whatever it might be, a lot of those voices, if you listen closely enough, they're spoken in a cadence of someone that you can remember from when you were much younger. Sure. So uh, for you, let's get specific. Let's get personal. I don't know. Being honest, like I, this is why I asked you to be my therapist and you said mm. that we know each other too well and you won't do it. <laughs> um, but being, I, I haven't done this work. There is a... Yeah. But there's work to be done. Uh, yeah, there's tons. And I find mm. it interesting. Like I genuinely have embraced the opportunity to delve into the 
into these sort of deeper areas of myself. Um, yeah. But I, I, I don't know. Like I can listen. Li- I can listen quietly enough to know that it's a familiar voice, but I don't really know what the amalgamation of everything is. Mm. And um, yeah, but that was an interesting insight. You know, I've got a lot to thank your previous uh, job at the School of Life for these insights that have sort of rolled forward and allowed Mm. me to to see this sort of stuff. Uh, Mm. But yeah, I, I I don't think that I know. I can't pick it apart. It's like a very messy sort of soundtrack at the moment. And the texture of my mind when I try and get to that place is mm. something that, that requires more work. It's like a glass ceiling and a glass floor that I I can't really get past just yet. But see, what what you've done is really brave, actually, because you have said, I don't know, which is a really honest part of any emotional discovery, that there is that bit of mess and uncertainty and kind of unknowing that's part of learning and growing. So that's, that's a really genuine aspect of this process and and of course this is not therapy and you're right it won't be your therapist but we can have intense deep conversations of course but i think i think it's really important to not have it all be tidy and resolved and there can be a sense that emotional epiphanies happen overnight and it's a creative process and any creative process requires stages and steps and a bit of mess and experimenting Given that we're talking about questions at the moment, have you got any of the favorite questions that you like to ask your clients as like opening questions mm. that people who are listening I, can ask themselves and maybe to sort of take away from this and, and ruminate on over the next while? Sure. I mean, I don't encourage ruminating, but sure. Um, tell me about a time that you thought you couldn't survive and tell me about what got you to the other side or if you have gotten to the other side? That's a cool question. It's not a question I always ask, but I am asking you. Uh, I can definitely take one from this year that going into the, I ruptured my Achilles three Mm. and a half months ago. And as someone who sometimes has catastrophic thinking, I just Mm. presumed that it would go badly i didn't think i Mm. had a particularly good constitution to be resilient in that sort of situation Mm. you know if if i can get sad and upset when there's ostensibly nothing wrong when there's really something wrong just how fucked Mm. am i going to be um Mm. and i think i i just presumed i was a lot more fragile than i was um fascinating yeah it was interesting i i found Mm. in myself a room it was like living in a house for your entire life and finding a door to a room that you didn't know existed and you open it mm-hmm. and it's like a fucking bunker and it's lead lined and there's a shotgun in there and you can mm-hmm. take on a lot it was very endogenous it came out of somewhere inside mm-hmm. of me um and i think that that's reassuring for people who think that maybe they don't have the resilience they see people who go through much much worse things than i do you know people who've been like human trafficked or captured by terrorists or, you know, lost both of their legs, have been terminally Mm. ill, all of this sort of things. Mm. Um, There is certainly something inside me and presumably Mm. other people as well. Because I heard these stories, right? You hear about this person 
had his arms stuck under a rock in the middle of the desert for 72 hours with no water and he survived and then did a ultra marathon back to whatever mm. and you see people like david goggins getting after it and you think like what like what on earth is wrong with these people i'm never going to be like them um mm. but kind of when reality comes a knocking there is something that answers and that for me was um that was a really interesting insight this year. That's probably one of the things I'm proudest about out of this year. Obviously, I'm happy with how this project's gone and other bits and pieces, mm. but certainly my response, the way I that I responded, that. is one of the things I'm most proud of. So just to recap, you thought you were less capable, less resilient, less robust. Precisely. And actually, you've gotten to the other side, and when something really did go wrong, you were able to handle it. Yeah. yeah. How encouraging. Yeah, very much so. I'm bolstering. But it makes me think, like, what on earth was going on? Why am I, Why was there periods during my 20s mm. where I wouldn't be able to get out of bed for days on end, mm. just crushed under the weight of existence when there was nothing wrong? So, sure. I mean, it's it's really interesting how there are times in life when stepping in a puddle is traumatic and other times when you have a true disaster and, and you can actually deal with it. And I think sometimes it's harder when things aren't going wrong and, and you're just feeling a kind of despair. So I feel for the person in you where everything was ostensibly going okay and you were really suffering, <laughs> just carrying the weight of existence. That's still hard, yeah. in some ways harder, because the world couldn't even see what was wrong. And you didn't even have any explanation for what was happening. Yeah, the the shame around depression was something that I took. It took me an awfully long time to deal with. The, mm. Especially because of the asymmetry we see online now that we, are, we all now not only have to live up to other people's ideals, but the ideal that we've set for ourselves on our own social mm. media channel, right? Like you put yourself across as X, Y, and Z, and then one day you're fucking the Batman symbol and you think, oh, hang on, like I'm supposed to be X, Y, or Z here and yeah. you, you have to try and compensate and yeah, I, w I was so ashamed like the fact, why am I in bed? Like, why can't I get out of bed? Why can't I feel good about life? I haven't got any problems. So it got very meta. Oh yeah, hugely and obviously those mm. thought loops kind of make everything worse um, and I can rationalize, you know, I've got advice, I've given advice to tons and tons of people of how I tried to try and deal with depressive episodes mm. But at the time, it just feels like drowning in thoughts. Like that's mm. what depression feels like. It feels like sure. you're drowning under the weight of your own consciousness. And it's such a, it's such a heavy situation to exist in mm. that it really doesn't surprise me how getting out of bed can feel like it takes a superhuman effort. You know, opening opening the curtains requires the world's strongest man to give you a hand with it. Totally. It's really interesting. In the course of five minutes, I feel like you've already changed gears in your attitude towards that time in your life. Because first you said, at first you kind of made light of it. And you said you you couldn't really cope with life at the time. But then you were able to cope with your Achilles. I I feel like you've now become more compassionate to that to that inner self. Yeah, maybe. I think there's probably a bit of uh, defense mechanism that goes in there that if you can be flippant about a situation yeah. that once gave you trauma, that you kind of don't remind yourself of that. 
But one of the one of my favorite episodes that I've done on the show was my experience with depression a few years mm. ago now, um, and that I continue to get messages all the time from people who listen to that, and mm. the insight I think I haven't heard many conversations from people where they've dealt with depression and it's been just just because. You know, it's not the grand needed to go to rehab, overdosed on drugs, cheated on my girlfriend, got kicked out of the house, got found by the no police. No situational like stressor. But, but not even that. Just that it's not, it's not, there's no glory or grandeur or even yeah. narrative behind it. it yeah. That, that to me is the real pain, I think, of depression in the 21st mm. century that it can be so comfortable it can be so yeah. unremarkable unremarkable mm. depression and you mm. just think what why do i feel bad why do i feel this way what is it about me why am i not strong enough to be able to get past this why am i dealing with these thoughts that i why am i thinking i'm just thinking the same thing over and over and i'm the yeah. more that i think it the more that i spend this time here the more that i hate myself the more that i wish that it wasn't the the, the, the case um and it's a, a level of depression that doesn't end. It's not got suicidal ideations in it. It's not got that level of it's grandeur in it. It's less eventful. Yeah, it's, just it's totally unremarkable. Um, so what would you say to that time in your life, to that person you were? It was a long time, you know? Like, it doesn't, I, I still don't. What would don't. you say to him? In the cold light of day, as we are now, it's very easy to think with the, the comfort of rationality, right? Um mm you are so illogical in that situation so unbelievably detached from what's actually happening uh, and mm. sometimes this can be triggered by like something so small mm. and you know all, all of the practical implications that i have which are a, a couple of step process that you need to break down the things that you need to do into steps so small that even you can do them, which is I need to get out of bed. Okay. First off, I need to pull the covers off me. I need to put my right foot on the yeah. floor, then my left foot yeah. on the floor. Then I need to stand up so you can break things down in that way. And that's a practical way. Um, a warm shower, a walk, call a friend and have a big glass of water. Like those things yeah. will fix so much of the way that you feel. Um, mm. But when you can't get out of bed or when you feel like you can't get out of bed, um, and you just want to hide under the covers from reality or existence, uh, that, that feels very, very far away. So I don't, oh. I, I don't really know. I don't think the solution is the rationality. And mm. giving yourself a aphoristic, cerebral, psychological solution to this also doesn't work because you're not thinking sufficiently clearly to be able to, to lean on that my george yeah. again tweeted something that said uh, telling someone to think their way out of overthinking is like telling someone to snort their way out of a cocaine addiction mm. that's very smart <laughs> i like that <laughs> mm. um so disputing it really doesn't help because it feels like that and that's that's the thing i think as well that 
even even with a drug addiction, people can see from the outside in, you know, like they can see that there's there's some sort of physical dependency going on here. If they took me in a lab and they measured me, they'd know there was something wrong. Mm. Or if I was actually skint or I would run out of money or if I was actually broken a bone or, you know, destitute, mm. whatever it might be, it would feel more legitimate. I think it's the lack of legitimacy, this oh, yeah. bizarre bourgeois fucking... Mm. <laughs> um, you don't feel you have the right to complain. Yeah, who am I? Who am I to feel sad? Mm. And yeah, that um that was something that I think was difficult to swallow as well because mm. even the stories that were given of depression are, are these ones mm. of grandeur. Uh, I had yeah. this conversation with a, a a buddy one of the very early episodes a guy called Mike Caju and um I asked him whether or not he thought he, he was addicted to heroin and cocaine by the age of 14. He was an alcoholic by the age of 16. And um, he bounced back to now be the CEO of this hugely successful company. He won the CrossFit Games twice. Um, but I asked him if he hadn't hit rock bottom, whether he would still be there. And it's mm. this not, not good, not great, not average, but just sort of ambient dissatisfaction with life mm. sort of vacillating between just okay enough to think that life's all right mm. down to kind of existential bit of pain and then wobbling mm. back up again um mm. that really doesn't give anyone the activation energy to bounce out of the bottom um and yeah. i wonder i wonder whether sometimes a breakdown can actually be quite useful in that way oh i think so but I think you're also really onto something with the kind of scolding that goes on internally. The, the telling off for you don't have a right to feel this way. Um, it's so, it's so persecutory. It's so self-loathing on top of everything else. And, and I think it, it sounds like anger turned inwards. It really does. There's a, it's an, it's probably very quickly. It becomes the, majority of the weight that you're trying to bear mm. i think the self-referential the narrative about the mm. narrative yeah um because the first thing only exists whatever it is that kicks off the bad mood that that first thing only ever exists for just you know a fleeting conversation mm. meeting day concern whatever it might be mm. um and then after that it's the thoughts about thoughts and the feelings the about feelings. I, I often see this in therapy. You have the primary emotions, which, which just happen for various reasons. And they're fine, whatever they are. But it's often the secondary emotions that are so tricky. So I, feeling angry at yourself for feeling sad and kind of coming in with the judgment. So it, it's often looking at the, the secondary emotions that can be really helpful for then just accepting the primary emotions, if that makes sense. So you said, think about a time when you thought you couldn't survive uh, yeah. and then think about how you did. What's another one? Mm. Another what, Another question. That people can not ruminate on, that people can enjoyably think about. <laughs> what would you say to the most fragile part of yourself? Oh, that's a good one. I think I take things very seriously. I take life very seriously. It's a function mm. of someone who thinks a lot because mm. 
small incidents get magnified up to take up more room than they deserve. Mm. Um, I've certainly noticed this and other people who spend a lot of time in solitude, in fact, probably everybody throughout 2020, will notice mm. that small incidents, whether good or bad, will have probably had a disproportionate effect on them because totally. they've had the time to ruminate. Right? Totally, totally. That's why I, when you said ruminate, it, reflect, I had to come in. Reflect. Yeah, but because ruminating is just so huge right now. Um, and and we're in the kind of Zoom gloom and we don't have the normal camaraderie and incidental banter that helps diffuse things and we feel paranoid. We get a weird email, we get a weird text, and then it just grabs hold yeah. and takes up residence. And that, it's really powerful. That power of diffusory humor is mm. something that I've almost totally forgotten about, um, mm. which sounds stupid, but especially this year, the number of times where something something's happened and you can just laugh it off. Like yeah. I was talking to a SAS operative a couple mm. of weeks ago, and he was saying that the use of very dark humor in the special forces is one of the ways that they deal with bad situations. That he's, makes total sense. He's been next to guys who've been taking fire and one of them's been shot in the arm and mm. he'll start laughing and everyone mm. will start laughing. Mm. Uh, and you think, I mean, I, I, gallo humor. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, very much so. So, Next question. What would you say to your 102-year-old self? What what has worked in your life? What has success meant to you? That's still something that I think is I'm working out. I, mm. I think that when you do a ton of self-work, which I've done over the last few years, and hopefully as more people listen to the show, they kind of get dragged through that world as well. Mm. Um, I would find it difficult to work out a trajectory for me because I think I'm still at quite an inflection point. Mm. Um, I get really jealous. That's one thing that I do get interestingly jealous about is whenever I meet people that have very concrete senses of where they want to be longer term, um, I was talking to this guy while I was in Dubai who said, do you know what it is, man? Like he's an architect. He's doing all of these different things, making a ton of money, like very successful young guy as well. Mm. And he was like, do you know what it is, man? Like I'm loving what I'm doing at the moment, but I just can't wait to own a bar on a beach with my wife and my couple of kids in somewhere hot. Totally clear plan. And I'm like, are you <laughs> fucking kidding me? Mm. Like why, how, how, I was like that, and I had to call it out. I was like, dude, that's a, that's an incredibly precise well-defined plan and i didn't think that he was postulating at all i didn't think that this was him putting on a facade like he just said it like it was a fact yeah. like drop the apple it falls to the floor and yeah. i was like holy fucking shit i'm so jealous of that like mm. I, i've never been i've never been certain about sort of long term what that is um so lots of question marks yeah, for sure. Which is which is beautiful and great. For my 102-year-old self, there are lots of question marks. There are some qualities that matter um, for a good, rich life, but it, it's not too specific. I think it's good to keep these things loose and, and sp allow space as well, space for surprise, discovery, growth. I think you're right. Uh, you used a word that brings us to our next question, jealousy. When was the last time you felt incredibly jealous that certainly comes to mind that incident that I said there with someone who has mm. this, this super sort of tight trajectory. I mean, I, 
I think everybody feels envy on an almost second by second mm. basis when they look at social media, right? Like I've come back to the UK now and all of my buddies that I was out there with are still out in Dubai. And I think, oh, like it's so nice and warm out there. But this is something I've certainly realized that the grass is always greener for us mm. as humans. And this stems from evolutionary psychology that humans aren't built to be happy. They're built to be effective. We're mm. literally wired to be to find life unsatisfactory because if the first mm. time that you had sex, you'd never had sex again. If the first time that you ate, you'd never hunt food again. You mm. need to eat the deer and it just not actually be quite as nice as you thought. Mm. You need to have sex and it just kind of make you feel a little bit less fulfilled than you thought it was going to be. There's mm. this, this quote, I can't remember who the philosopher is, and he says, um, after copulation, the devil's laughter can be heard. And the... <laughs> uh, uh, concept is a, a medical diagnosis for men that get brief acute existential crises after they've come mm. uh and to the men who are suffering with that that are listening like it's not just you um, but it's just a really hilarious way that our genes influence our emotions because mm. it's adaptive it means mm. that we're more likely to survive and reproduce which is really all mm. that we're here for mm. um so yes i think that jealousy pops up fairly consistently for me when i mm. see things and and another part of it i think is stems from an insecurity around not being all that i could be mm. that you think it's almost a, a jealousy for an imagined world in which i was fulfilling my potential so you're you're self-envious yeah very much so mm. i think i'd like look at the world i could have if only yeah. i wasn't spending as much time on my phone, not getting up mm. until seven, I could be getting up at six, or I could be going you're to bed at whatever, I should be reading rather than watching TV. Or I should you're, be doing... you're competing with your ego ideal. Precisely. Mm. That's a really interesting and insidious competition that happens all the time, <laughs> that we don't talk about enough, where you are constantly looking at the kind of activated, potentiated you and falling short. And, and it plays out all the time, I think, in life. I don't mean you specifically. I just mean human beings. Yeah, it so does. So thank you for offering offering that up. You've been incredibly open today. And you have actually spoken quite bravely and vulnerably. Thank you. Can we try and recap the questions for people so that they can remember what we went through? Yeah, absolutely. So question one. Can we list some traits that felt like flaws in our childhoods, but actually turn out to be strengths? So identify those weaknesses and turn them around into sources of success. Second question, can you think of a time in your life that you didn't think you could survive that felt traumatic and maybe unbearable and what helped you get to the other side? Third question, what would you say to the most fragile part of yourself? Fourth question, what would you say to your 102-year-old self? Fifth question, can you describe a time when you felt incredibly jealous? That's cool. Okay. Thank you so much for being so open and brave and and walking the walk. Well, thank you for being here. I'm glad that you bullied me into doing this. <laughs> <laughs> completely blindfolded, led me into the room and then decided to do this. Um, do we know when 
you're going to complete writing your book? Oh, I'm I'm handing it in in May. Okay. And yeah. how long is that? Is that like six months from then until publish? Um, I It'll be published early 2022. Cool. Well... Depending on depending on how brave you manage to get me over the next year, we may be back on to do a similar episode and then you will absolutely be back on to talk about that. I really appreciate your friendship. I, I absolutely love the fact that we met each other a year ago and I'm very, very glad that uh, you, you pushed me into doing this today. Same here. It's such a pleasure. I, I did want to tell you what led me to want to ask you all of these questions as well, which okay. was an Aesop fable. I could have said this at the beginning. Um, it's, it's one of my favorite fables and I was actually reading it to my six year old son the other night. And there's a mother crab who is lecturing her baby crab on the importance of walking straight. And the baby crab says, but mom, you're walking sideways. And I think it's a really beautiful, powerful story. I think of it as a therapist all the time of kind of doing as we say, practicing what we preach. So it just made me think you're constantly asking questions. You're very good at digging deep. Um, I've been on the receiving end of that. You, you bring out interesting, quirky, idiosyncratic encounters all the time. And what is the life for you of, of being that question asker? Um, I wanted to just have a sense of your interior world. So thank you for allowing us to see it. Thank you. Okay.